Welcome to Famous Lost Words. I'm Christopher Ward with my co-host and the creator of the show and the ace of the archives, Mr. Tom Jokic. Thank you very much, Christopher. Christopher, you and I differ in many ways, but we also have a few things in common. (laughs) And one of them is we both kind of have a reaction when anyone brings up the band Bon Jovi. And that reaction is, meh. (laughs) (laughs) I had a great experience with Bon Jovi. Sure. But... It had nothing to do with the music. That's the only great experience you can have with Bon Jovi. <laughs> oh. Sorry. Sorry about we're that. We're going to get letters. We are going to get letters. I actually really like this interview that we're about to play in a few minutes. It's from the year 2000. It's just a shorty. It's about seven minutes long. And there's some great stuff in it. And I do really like the camaraderie between John Bon Jovi and Richie Sambora in this moment. Because as we know, it did not end well with those guys. Even though they were together at the recent Rock and Roll Hall of Fame induction, there's still a lot of bad feelings between those two guys. And I'm glad they put those issues away for the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Now, whether they deserve to be in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, we could spend the rest of the hour talking about, but let's not, because we do want to have listeners keep listening, and we even want to have Bon Jovi fans (laughs) listen to this show. But it's coming up. It's really a great piece, and I have to grudgingly admit that John and Richie are great in this, and I also have to grudgingly admit admit that I do like two Bon Jovi songs, Living on a Prayer and the live version of Living on a Prayer. So those are the only two good songs. (laughs) That's not two songs, that's one song. (laughs) And the prosecution rests. (laughs) Gee. And let's talk about what else we have coming up. Christopher, we have your sensational interview with Neil Finn, who these days is known for being one of the two people who replaced Lindsey Buckingham in Fleetwood Mac. Of course, Neil is also known as the lead singer and songwriter for Crowded House. And this interview goes back almost 30 years. And whether you are into songwriting or just mildly curious about it, these clips with Neil are fantastic. Also, Joan Jett from 1981, the year that I Love Rock and Roll came out. She's great in this, whether she's talking about other artists like Pat Benatar, Chrissy Hind, or about how her parents were afraid for her safety when she decided to enter the big bad world of rock and roll. And we also have a couple of very interesting clips from one of the greatest songwriters of all time. He talks about a song we all know and love, and one that the bands at Motown thought was terrible. What he did about it and what happened after that is really interesting. Now, let's go back to the year 2000 with Bon Jovi. First of all, you had a great experience with Bon Jovi. Tell us all about that. I was hosting a show called City Limits. Mm-hmm. It was an all-night video show in Toronto, and it was the precursor to much music. This was in 1983. And I got a call from a woman named Karen Gordon, who was the promo rep at Polygram Records at the time, and she was a friend of the show. And um, she said, you know, I've got this band in town. Nobody knows anything about them. They're playing at the Elma Combo. And there's probably going to be about 20 people there. And is there any way you'd have them on your show? And we went, for you, anything. So we did. So she brings down Bon Jovi, the entire band, Mm -hmm. and they come to the all-night show. And we lost their video. So So you're about to play their video on the air, and you cannot find it. We can't find the video. (laughs) So they could not have been cooler about the whole thing. They did this thing where it was like, well, let's find the video. 
And as it happens, that was right at the end of the run of City Limits before Much Music. So we were packing everything up because then they were going to create the Much Music Studios. Right. So everything was in boxes all over the place. So they go storming down the halls, kind of like, you know, a rock and roll Marx Brothers movie. And they are like emptying out closets and drawers and cupboards and taking things out of boxes. And one of them is drinking beer out of one of the women's shoes. And I mean, it was really, really funny. And they were just so cool and so loose about it. And during that time, yes, we found the video. That's great. The video That's... for the song Runaway. Right. And that was their, their first single. It was not a hit. Okay. So that was great. They stayed, they hung around, they didn't want to leave. <laughs> it, was, it was lovely. And anyway, um, cut to, I guess about four years later, they have an album, a little record called Slippery When Wet, <laughs> which sold, oh, 11 million copies. They came back to Toronto, and they just said, we're only doing one show. And you know which show that was. So they did your show. They did, on Much Music. And we had a barbecue for them, and they <laughs> insisted on doing the barbecuing. <laughs> I, the, there's something kind of like really loose and friendly and, you know, guys hanging down the street kind of about them that I, I very much like. Yeah, me too. And there are moments when I really, really like John Bon Jovi, and you can hear it in this upcoming interview, which we're about to play. So let's go to that. We'll talk more about Bon Jovi after we hear this interview from 2000, and I uh, hope you enjoy it. So from 2000, Lee Eckley talking to John Bon Jovi and Richie Sambora. Uh, this is my first time in L.A., and I spent the last four hours driving around Mulholland and Sunset Boulevard and all over the place. Mm -hmm. And now I know, in five, ten years' time, after getting very well acquainted with this record, that I'm going to be reminded every time I hear it great. of the new Bon Jovi record. And that's a great thing. Already you've, already you've connected, which Absolutely. is really cool, and the record's not even out yet. Yeah. Music is like a scrapbook, man. It sure is. It really is. It's like, a, it's like you know, it, it can certainly take you back. I mean, you, I'm sure you remember what you were listening to the first time you made out with it. A girl in the back uh -huh. of a car and you know uh -huh. what was going on or the first time you got your heart broken what you were listening to and uh -huh. all that stuff yeah it's just very important this is a a really really good record it's um thank you congratulations thank you. um it's your best yet isn't it bingo <laughs> i'm very happy that that seems to be the reaction you know when we wrote it when we recorded it we felt really good but you never know until people hear it and it's, it's just makes us feel awfully good that you know that all the work wasn't in vain. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But it's so nice to hear people say it's the best record we've ever made because God knows we've had some successful ones, but mm -hmm. we're very proud of this one. Absolutely, there's not a throwaway track on it from front to back. It's Thank very, you. very strong, and it, it's different than the days when you did Slippery Glen Wet when it was yeah. a record that was 38 minutes long, mm. and now you have a record you're recording on digital now. To give people the value, sometimes it's over an hour, and it's very easy to throw something in there that you might ne not necessarily have in the old days. That's, I guess that's a valid point. I, I don't know how long Slippery was, but it was probably just ten songs, too, come to think of it. Yeah, um, yeah you're right. And, and But we had 60 finished songs to pick from. And to narrow it down to 12, you know, it wasn't that difficult, but... You know, we wanted to make sure we had the very best for it. In like a book or a movie, it had to have a beginning, a middle, and an end to present an album. Mm -hmm. So you couldn't be repetitious in the lyrical content or the feel of certain songs. You had to uh, be able to tell a complete story. But you know, the thing that gets me about the record is how natural it sounds. It sounds like it just happened. It sounded 
like it just flowed. I mean, I've never heard anything like that before from you guys. That was something where, you know, I mean... Are you guys just fooling me? Was it that much more difficult because it no, sounded so no, easy? No, no, it was ex extremely easy. It was uh -huh. one of those records that went down very easily, and I think that's a testimony to the songwriting. Mm -hmm. uh, I think that, you know, when you have great songs, it's easy to, they go down easier when you're making records. Mm -hmm. We found our voice as a band, you know, on, on our third album, which was Slippery When Wet, and I think that, that that was a real, real important thing for us. You know. Are you playing better than ever before? Yes, he is. Thank you, sir. Yes, he is. What do you attribute that to, both of you? Obviously, just, experience, I think just maturity, yeah. experience, and and just loving it, I guess. Mm -hmm. Well, you both have done outside projects uh, since the last record, so I would assume that doing that would uh, kind of reinvigorate you and uh, probably bring the band back to a much fresher place to start from, would it not? Yeah, I mean, with we had enormous success and a feeling of true gratification at the end of these days because the greatest hits into the these days tour you know they were one in the same when we walked away feeling this great sense of accomplishment we also knew that there was nothing left to say to go in the studio as the band that, that fall there wasn't enough of, a, of an identity that to take us into what would have been 97 98 99 so we knew to walk away but what that does is gives us the opportunity as individuals to express ourselves and to learn in his case from Don Was and from me with Dave Stewart and Steve Laroni, other guys' tricks. And then you bring them back and it it helps refresh our own situation, brings new information. So I, I only mean refresh in a good way because there was no trepidation about making another record after these days. There was such a victory lap going on there. It was the biggest tour we'd ever done. Um, mm. We just needed new information. And, and what happens when you're in a band Every experience you have, you experience together, you see. And so there's no other opportunity for new information to get in. And the only way for us to do it was to go out and do solo ventures or movies or art or things that are going to bring new information to the fold. John, this is a really exciting time for you because you uh, you just finished your best record and uh, you're starring in a new movie called U571 with Harvey Keitel. And, and, a hit. and it's a and, hit. And it looks like it's going to be a hit. The trailers are absolutely spectacular um, and it's a great story. Harvey Keitel, Matthew McConaughey, you've worked with um, some great actors in the past and, and now it's a new passion of yours. It's, uh, it's not really much of a stretch because being a front man and uh, in a very popular rock band, you are a bit of a ham to begin with, aren't you? Well, yeah, I guess so. But on the other hand, it's not a face that I put on to, to portray that character who goes on stage at night. Mm -hmm. uh, there's a lot, of, a lot of differences and a few similarities. Um, in the movie business, I'm, I'm speaking someone else's words for the first time. That's a huge difference. In the music business, in essence, you're the director, producer, star, and marketeer. And in the movie business, I'm the bass player. You know, I, mean, I have nothing to say about it and do about it. Do your part and go home. You know, and just keep that rhythm. That's it, man. Don't you know, break it. Right. Don't mess up. No wrong just notes. Just sit here and, and don't hit the wrong notes. So, it's interesting. It's educational. It's exciting. It's um, it's a it's it's a great passion. All the girls at work were really really excited that I was coming down to talk to you guys. 
They were just like, ah, you know, it's a funny thing, you know, because I, I talk to a lot of people all the time and there are only a handful of people where people actually walk up and say, oh, make sure you give John a hug for me or give <laughs> Richie a kiss for me. But a lot of people are asking about Heather, your oh, wife, Heather sure, Locklear, sure. and, and how they want to know how she's doing. She's doing very, very well. Now, she signed up for another year on Spin City. Absolutely. Right. And uh, now, so she's going to be uh, working for another television season. And of course, you have a family life now, right. uh, the two of you. So, and, and of course, things have changed a lot since, uh, you know, 1982 when you guys were single, young, and crazy. Um, what keeps you doing it? And where do you find the balance, especially where it gets more complicated with, with John working on other projects as well? Ah, well, I mean, we've learned how to do it after all these years, obviously. You know, we've learned how to tour comfortably. Um, obviously, we make time for our families and our touring schedule, and we don't mess any of that up as far as the relationships go. And it's actually doesn't seem like it's a big thing. I mean, everybody else makes a big thing out of it, but we think we know how to do it, and I think it's, that's true. Christopher, one more thing about Bon Jovi, and this is a great quote from John Bon Jovi, and he said, If you wanted to torture me, you'd tie me down and force me to watch our first five videos. (laughs) Very good. That's Joan Jett with I Love Rock and Roll from 1981. Christopher, take it away. Tom, Joan Marie Larkin was born outside of Philadelphia 60 years ago. When her family moved to L.A., she began pursuing her career in earnest at age 15. She hung out in the clubs a lot and formed the Runaways in 1975. So between 76 and 79, they released five albums and had big success in Japan, as the cliche goes, but never could really crack the U.S. market. Joan connected with a producer-writer by the name of Kenny Laguna, and they began work on her first solo album. They were rejected by 23 labels. I didn't know there were that many. (laughs) In this interview with Joan and Kenny Laguna from 1981, Joan was starting to experience her first wave of success. She was asked to describe her music. Yeah, well, I just consider it rock and roll, Mm -hmm. you know, to me, and that's the way it sounds to me. It's hard for me to put those sort of labels on it because those just seem to be like media labels to me, dress codes or Mm -hmm. something. I like the fact that there's other girls in rock and roll, you know. I mean, I like the Pretenders. I've seen them live mm-hmm. and stuff. I like them, you know. Pat Benatar I've heard on the radio. I like some of the stuff. You know, it just depends. I mean, I, I haven't, I'm not really involved in what they're doing because I'm so involved with what we're doing right now. There was an article about your parents thinking that what you're doing now is just great. And they yes. were sort of, they sort of had misgivings about it for. What's, what's, do you want to talk to us about that? Oh, they were just very skeptical when I, when I was 15 years old joining the Runaways. Oh, right. You know, they were, were never against it. Mm-hmm. They always said that they always wanted me to do what I wanted to do in my life because I always had done that anyway. Yeah. I was always different from the other little girls because I liked to play football and baseball when they were playing paper dolls and stuff. A tomboy. Yes. Yeah, yeah. So when did you pick up the guitar? When I was 12 years old. You can see how her parents would not want their daughter to run away and join a punk band called the Runaways. You can really Uh feel that. You know, you can feel their concern, but they also were really supportive of her, which is great. That's great to know. Well, I think parents of young rock and rollers have to be wise, which is... You can't talk them out of it, Mm -hmm. so you better be there for them. I think Mm -hmm. that's the best way to go. Yeah. She talks about writing the song, I'm Gonna Run Away, with Kenny Laguna. It's basically about, you know, a relationship between two people Mm -hmm. and how everything was great, but then everything changed, and now you just want to get rid of the relationship. I see. You want to get away from the person and never come back. But the way that started out was uh, Kenny Laguna and I were sitting down in my apartment trying to write a song 
before the album, and because we were stuck, we were having like these little, you know, artistic mental blocks yeah, that everybody goes through. So we decided we'll both sit down and brainstorm, and one of us has got to come up with something. So we were really frustrated, and Kenny walked in my apartment, sat down, and said, "Oh, Joan, I can't handle this. I, I want to run away." And then I had my guitar in my hand, so I started just saying, "I'm gonna <laughs> run away, and I'm never coming back to you." And Kenny goes, "That's great." That's a song. So we just sat down from there. Fifteen minutes later, a half hour later, we were done. Great example of how a song happens. Sometimes one little phrase or thought, and then you're off to the races. That's great. So we also have Kenny Laguna in the interview. He talks about the then new "I Love Rock and Roll" album. You know, we came to America. We'd had a, a, the Bad Reputation album out in England. When we came back to America. We couldn't get a record deal, so we put it out ourselves, and. Had an incredible success with it, really, for an independent label. It got to the point where we couldn't afford to do the pressings anymore, and still nobody wanted to pick up Joan Jett and the Blackhearts. They thought it was a garbage band. You know, it's like it wasn't like you know today's market. There's a lot of very slick corporate bands out there, mm-hmm. and they said, you know, the days of this kind of band with the early '60s, it's over with. And Joan Jett is a maniac. We're not going to have any of this. So we went to the streets with it, and it's like it's really a classic rock and roll story. If we could have filmed it, we could have had a movie. Oh boy, can you tell that guy's from New York? Yeah, he's from New York. <laughs> he talks about their years of struggling and rejection. They went to the streets, the band worked. I mean, they starved. They really, literally starved. They, at one point, the whole band was sleeping in a, in, in the motorhome, and uh, uh, we'd get one room that Joan could sleep in, and they'd all share the bathroom in the morning, and they were eating $10 a day. That wasn't per diem, that was it. That was their rent, their phone, their road expense, and they got through it, and suddenly there was this... A cult that kept growing and growing and growing. It was undeniable. Our record company gave us no priority in the beginning. I'm talking about our American record company. Um, uh, gave us our United States record company. Right? Yeah. Gave us no priority until they started seeing that it, it had a constant flow of product all the time. Joan Jett and the Blackhearts. Then we came out with this album, and once again we tried to get the industry to support us in a special way. They said, no, this is garbage again and everything. It'll never make it. And what happened was we hit the top 100 five weeks ago, and now it's top 10 single and album in America. This is a band that's been rejected by every company in Europe and America, and it's not even just myself trying to place it. The guy who manages The Who, mm-hmm. the guy who manages ACDC and Aerosmith, and uh, you know, heavyweights try to do us a favor. The industry said no. And now there's so many guys trying to explain why they passed. Amazing story. You hear that a lot. So many record companies had a shot at an artist, and they couldn't see it, so they passed, but it only takes one. Joan Jett got elected to the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame in 2015, but there's a performance that you can find on YouTube from 2010 of the Dave Clark Five song, Bits and Pieces. Hmm. And she is fantastic. I love her version of that. That's great. Oh, and by the way, there is a Joan Jett Barbie doll. <laughs> Good yeah. stuff. Head now, head now, don't dream it's over. Head now, From 1986, that's Don't Dream It's Over, Crowded House, great song. Christopher, let's talk about Neil Finn of Crowded House. Let's also talk about songwriting. (laughs) This is a topic that is near and dear to my heart, so forgive me if we wade a little deeply into the weeds on this topic, particularly when we're talking to someone like the brilliant Neil Finn. Mm -hmm. His resume goes from split ends and crowded house to solo albums, music with his son Liam, music with his brother Tim, and now, of course, he can add membership in the new model of Fleetwood Mac. Wow. By the way, I saw that show, and they were amazing, and they depended on Neil Finn much more than I thought they would. Hmm. They didn't shy away from Lindsey Buckingham songs in the show, 
And who else but Neil could sing those songs? Really? Mick Fleetwood, by the way. So when they did uh, Go Your Own Way, did Neil sing that song? Absolutely. That's great. And it, and it rocked? It rocked, and people <laughs> loved it. The crowd went crazy. <laughs> That's excellent. Lindsay who? No. <laughs> no, I mean, Lindsay Buckingham's a brilliant, creative musician. Sure. I mean, and, you know, and he benefits from the performance royalties from all these songs being played all over the world on big stages. So right. I think it's a win-win, really. For sure. I have to say, Mick Fleetwood, by the way, gave a very gracious intro to Neil to be sure that the crowd knew who he was. And they played a great version of Don't Dream It's Over with lots of vocal help from Stevie Nicks. Oh, you would have loved it. Wow. Tom, they also did a beautiful video and musical tribute to Tom Petty, a close friend of Stevie's and guitarist Mike Campbell's old bandmate. Wow. And that was a touching moment in the show. You know, they're coming back to Canada soon, and I need to see that final show. I actually think their tour is ending in Canada. Ah, okay. But most importantly, back to songwriting. Okay. So, <laughs> I interviewed Neil on the Crowded House tour bus and asked if he had any rituals or just habitual ways of working. No, not really, because the... Um I've never had, you know, uniform luck with any one particular type of environment, time of day, you know, seat, clothing, shirt. So I basically just think it happens when it happens. But most of it is really um, not losing confidence when you can't write. That's really, for me, part of the, part of the overall battle, really, because essentially 90% of the time when I'm, trying, when I'm sitting down and writing, I either get something that's too vague to consider a song or nothing happens at all. So, you know, sitting around waiting for that that flash to come. Are you disciplined about it? Do you intentionally sort of assume the position? No, not particularly. I'm disciplined enough about it to do it a fair amount. But I'm not really disciplined about staying in there all day if it's not happening. And, uh, you know, I just sort of... I can, you can sort of tell when you sit down on a guitar. It's like when you're not in the mood to read a book, you know. It can be a great book, but you, sometimes you're just too distracted. Whereas other times you get on the guitar and you start drifting off and start, you know, it's almost like a bit of a meditation or something. You start losing your uh, thoughts, thoughts of day-to-day -day events and start gaining a bit of access to the old inside grey matter. Oh, I love this guy. He's so likable, not full of himself. So, Tom, this, this kills me, this next segment. He talks about a phenomenon that I know so well. Late night songwriting. I asked Leonard Cohen if he abandoned ideas, and he said never. He said that he figured that if there was a good enough reason to start something, that it would eventually produce something, which amazed me. What persistence. Well, no, I, th I can relate to that, because I think it, it depends how good you are recognizing your good ideas from your bad ones, really, and uh, there's no point in keeping bad idea around just because you had it for the sake of it. But um, I think that's one of the reassuring things about doing something for a long time, is that eventually you get to recognize when you've just written something that's of some worth, you know, and you're much quicker at picking that up. And if nothing happens immediately, you can store that. You'll I'll always store that away, and usually it'll come back. There is the odd song that slipped away, never to be heard again. Those middle-of-the-night ones? Yeah, sort of. I mean, sometimes you're in, it's so late, that, and you're singing so breathlessly quiet, it's sort of... You know, all that sort of stuff. Because it's so late at night, I'm always really quiet and breathy, and, and usually my voice is wrecked anyway, so um, I find, and then you get them and you sing them full voice the next day and they sound like a, you know, like you shouldn't have bothered, but um, sometimes you get good ideas that way. And it's amazing the transitions that some songs can make. The song Love You Till The Day I Die started off sort of, uh, you know, 
Sometimes I can't be still. I don't want to hurt you. So forgive me if I tell a lie. It's almost a ballad, you know. Sometimes I come on cold. Don't believe it. I will love you till the day I die. Frost on the window pane, all that sort of stuff. And and I just took that to the band one day, and Nick had a really wild reverb sound on his bass, and it sort of suggested a whole different approach. So songs can often metamorphosize, metamorphize themselves, you know, in incredible fashion. Oh, that's excellent. And you know, this next clip I've heard before, Christopher, We you sent it to me just a few days ago. So this next clip is like a master class in songwriting. So tell me about that. As all good workmen and workwomen should, he assembles the tools of his trade. Paper, pen, cup of tea. Let the strumming begin. It's just a matter of daydreaming, really, yeah. I'll be just doing this for a while, see? Just going through chords and melodies and letting them slip around a bit and then occasionally a, a phrase will drop in your brain and with that particular one that was something I was generally saying no phrase dropped in so it's not a very good example but uh, you'll get some phrase to hang it on usually after a while and, uh, and then I'll get a pad and piece of pad and paper in front of me and I'll drop the first few lines down and then if if I'm continuing to play if I haven't already rewarded myself with a cup of tea I'll uh, just try and work out as many lyrics that feel right with the melody I've just made up as I can even if they make absolutely no sense whatsoever, I just write them down, you know. And then later on you try and piece them together a bit and try and make sense of it. And then the last half of the process is actually finishing it at some later date, usually for me. I very rarely get a whole song at once. Some There is some that I do like that, but uh, usually the, half the lyrics need to be finished at some later date. And the hard part with that is you've got to put yourself in the same mental state of mind that you when you wrote it to get the kind of the words that sound right and have a ring to them, you know, have the... Because, you know, 90%, who knows what percentage, some percent, a large percentage of it is making the words sound right for starters, you know. There's no point in having a brilliantly um, conceptualised argument in a song or an idea in a song if, if it, the sound of the words is really ugly, like, you know, I looked into my filing cabinet and what did I find, you know. It just doesn't, you can't sing filing cabinet in a song, it doesn't work. Maybe now that I've said that, I probably it'll be in the next one for sure. <laughs> He's so wow. honest, isn't he? Yes. Oh man. He says, you know what? You're gonna you're gonna love this next segment. He says it's important to go ahead and write those really embarrassing things. That's why you have to let your defenses down when you're writing with somebody else because you you actually you know my wife walks in on me sometimes and I'm writing and I'm singing sort of you know. I put the cat out. You know. Back in the fridge Let's pretend We didn't see him You know, it's like, uh, I don't know I think it's half the time if you actually have a tape going You start to, if you listen to it enough You actually start to like the ones that don't make any sense the most But, um, you know, a song like Sister Madly was written like that I, Lines had made no, absolutely no sense at all but I shifted a couple of them around and changed it so that 
as long as I feel I can go through the song and each line individually makes sense to me, then I'm quite happy. But, okay, so that song about the cat in the fridge is a missed opportunity, okay? <laughs> you know, I saw Crowded House live right around the time of that first album. So, Don't Dream It's Over, Something So Strong, a few songs like that, really big. And they were so much fun. I do remember the highlight of it. You remember Paul Hester, the drummer, right? The late drummer of, of the group. Of course. And I think he pulled his snare drum to the front of the stage. And they, they go into this riff. Right. And it's, it's just Neil on acoustic guitar. And they go... I'm going, that? I think they're doing Led Zeppelin. They did a hilarious... <laughs> But really fantastically energetic version, acoustic version of Whole Lot of Love. It was so oh, much fun. Funny. And they were fun. And you know, I'm just gobsmacked at the fact that Paul Hester, that drummer, is no longer with us. And it was a very, very sad ending to him. And, you know, I really missed that spirit of that guy who was just whacking away on his drums and having a great time. And it was just part of this lovely group of three guys who were having the time of their lives in the late 80s, you know, up here in a, at a concert. Well, they were like the house band at Much Music. I mean, it was crazy. They came <laughs> all the time and played live, and half the time, Paul, as you said, he would just play on his lap or yes. play with a box, you know, yeah. whatever was handy. Yeah. And it's funny because I, I was talking to Neil about that um, when I had that meeting with him, uh, you know, through, through Mike Myers, when we did BBC on his show. And um, he said, oh, yeah, Much Music, they sent us uh, a video compilation of all of our performances on air. And we watched it in the tour bus and we thought, oh, this is great. This is great. And then he said it was then suddenly it was just too much and we just got sick of ourselves. (laughs) (laughs) I I have one more segment here for you. Sure. One more segment on, on songwriting. And, you know, Tom, I've talked to a lot of songwriters and for the most part, they're willing to offer you a little peek into their cabinet of mysteries, but so many come around to that place of not really knowing where that first burst comes from, and they're often a little superstitious about keeping the tap open. Neil was exceptionally generous. He talked about one of my favorite Crowded House songs, Into Temptation, mm. and he reveals what it might have been. first bit I got of that was the chorus, which is Into Temptation, knowing full well the earth will rebound. That's all I had really to start off with that song. And in fact, the other verse was a just totally different piece of music, which I, which had a chorus originally that went, um, showing me how to give. Um, hello, Jack. <laughs> hello, Jill. Don't you wish that you'd never, not wish that you'd never been born? Hello, Jack. Hello, Jill. Don't you wish that you'd never been born, never been born, never been born, and then you opened up your door. I couldn't believe my luck. So, you know, that was, and I knew the chorus was never going to be there because I couldn't sing Jack and Jill seriously, you know, so... But these are the, this is the thing you have to put up with when somebody walks in on you and you're singing a line like that, you know. Yeah, some chronic embarrassment to deal with. That is fantastic. So that's Neil (laughs) Finn with a guitar playing an alternate version of Into Temptation. Different chords, different word structure. Like, it's that's so great. I actually am amazed he can remember the old version because the new version, 
you know, the hit version became such a big hit. You and I are going to be walking around going, Hello, Jack. (laughs) (laughs) Hello, Jill. Don't you wish that you'd never been born? (laughs) Well, you know, Christopher... It's just so nutty. We have to post some of the video there of that interview with you and Neil Finn from the Much Music Days because he is so lovable in that interview. There you go. Neil Finn on Famous Lost Words. Thanks very much, Christopher. Thanks, Tom. Okay, Christopher, now you've got one of my very favorite songwriters. The list of hits written by the Motown songwriting team of Brian Holland, Lamont Dozier, and Eddie Holland is staggering. It includes Heat Wave by Martha and the Vandellas. Whenever I'm with him. I'm doing, sorry, I'm singing every song, okay? Oh my gosh. (laughs) It's a good thing we are sitting very far (laughs) apart today. (laughs) Okay, I won't sing the rest of the time. Go. Thank you. How Sweet It Is to Be Loved by You by Marvin Gaye. Come on. Band of Gold by Frida Payne. Since you've been gone. Oh, no. (laughs) I I can't help myself, and neither can Tom. Sugar Pie, Honey Bunch. Okay. By the Four Tops. Yep. All right. I met Lamont Dozier, and he talked uh, not only about the songs, but also about 2648 West Grand Boulevard in Detroit, Michigan, known as Hitsville. USA. Right. This is the place that these songs were written and recorded, and Motown boss Barry Gordy ran a tight ship, to say the least. Was it a real uh, sort of nine-to-five, arrive at the office and start writing type of a job for you guys? Exactly. Nine-to-five. We punched the clock, too. Literally? Yeah, literally. Barry Gordy worked at Ford's, and that's the way he thought a company should be uh, ran. We punched the time clock, we punched out for lunch, punched back in, and... uh, we punched out at five or six, yeah. and that's where it was ran for a couple of years, two or three years there in the early days, until the company got uh, really going strong, and then we got rid of the time clock. Oh, wow. Now, with all those hit songs they wrote for various Motown artists, Holland Ozier Holland will always be associated with the Supremes. They wrote 10 of their 12 number one songs. Wow. That's extraordinary. Right. That includes Baby Love. Stop in the name of love, come see about me, you can't hurry love, and so on. You get the picture. Yeah. Now, Lamont has quite a story about the writing and recording of the song that broke the Supremes in 1963. Uh, in the case of Where Did Our Love Go, that's the thing I came up with, and uh, I had somewhat of a raw with a, a falling out. Uh, not really a falling out, just a little <laughs> few words were passed between me and uh, Diana about uh, the song itself. She had heard uh, the Marvelettes had turned down the song, which was actually the case. Uh, and uh, they felt that they were low on the totem pole and they would always get the, the garbage that everybody else would <laughs> reject. And uh, we had cut the track and uh, we thought that uh, the track did have something in it. You know, it was kind of strange, you know, in a way. Dun, dun, baby, baby, where did I love? Dun, 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 dun. It was like a bunch of guys having a, a, a out with, on the town drinking or something. It was like a bar song in a, in a sense, you know. But uh, the Marvelous hated it, and they were like talking. Uh, they had spread the word. Boy, girl, that now if they try to get this, get pan this song off, you better tell them that you know this is the worst song I've ever heard in my life. <laughs> and that was that was Gladys Hort that told uh, one of the, I think Mary Wilson that, uh, and Mary told her, Flo and uh, Diane that uh, 
if the song come your way, <laughs> you'll know it. Cause it's the worst piece of so and so, you know. <laughs> and so they got in, and they were very quiet. I mean, you know, they, uh, nothing was said until after we had recorded it, and it was in the wrong key, first of all. Because prior to that, all the Diane songs, uh, she was singing really high, you know, like a cat, you know, right? Up. Just, you know, but this was a low, sultry type of song, so it was really out of her normal range for, for singing, you know. And um, uh, the thing come out very sultry with her sound, and, and lo and behold, that was the song that made the Supremes. Uh, and the sound and everything. And the reason why the baby baby came about was that I just got fed up with trying to teach the harmony part. There was only two girls, you know. And we only had so many tracks. We couldn't overdub in those days like we do now. And uh, so I was trying little intricate type harmonies that just didn't work, you know. So finally I just got fed up and it wasn't sounding right with the voices. And I said, just saying, baby, baby. You know, it was like out of frustration. That's how I can it. This saying baby, baby. What? What's saying what? This saying baby, 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 baby. Yeah, this saying baby, baby. And that was it. And uh, afterwards, we were all looking at each other like in total amazement when this thing was running up the chart. The people are the judges and the final, uh, had the final say so. If it, if it doesn't pass the ear test and the heart test, and in this case, it was a, a three and a half, four man solo. Oh, that's funny. So the rumor goes around that this song that Holland, Dozier, and Holland are trying to get recorded is a dud. <laughs> <laughs> I know. And little did they know. Great stuff from Lamont Dozier. You know, he's still around. He had a bit of a resurgence in the 80s by writing Two Hearts with Phil Collins, which had a real Motown feel. And he also wrote the massive Alison Moyet song, Invisible. Ah, I bet you didn't know that. Okay, so let's check in with a bit of music news. We started the show with Bon Jovi, and a restaurant that John Bon Jovi owns in New Jersey provided free meals to local government workers who had been affected by the federal government shutdown. That was just last week. Uh, JBJ Soul Kitchen opened in 2011 and has become famous for allowing customers to pay by donation or volunteer to pay for their meals. Great stuff. KISS have announced the ninth edition of their annual KISS Cruise, and that will be from October 30th to November 4th. Listen, you need to go online and check out the feud between Gene Simmons and Ace Fraley. That has happened over the course of the last few days. It is amazing, it is ugly, and it's going to get worse. So check that out online. For you Bruce Springsteen fans, don't forget to check out our episode with him from episode 212. We had some great interview clips with him. There's a movie kind of about Bruce that was a big hit at the Sundance Film Festival earlier this week. It's called Blinded by the Light, and it's about a Muslim youth in 1987 Britain whose life changes after hearing the music of Bruce Springsteen. All right, it was directed by the same person who did Bend It Like Beckham, and we hear that the film received a standing ovation over the end credits, which showed photographs of Springsteen with the actors from the film. In other news, the musical adaptation of Alanis Morissette's classic album, Jagged Little Pill, will officially debut on Broadway this fall. The book, or the script as it's called on on the stage, was written by Oscar winner Diablo Cody, who I think is best known for the movie Juno. 
That uh, Jagged Little Pill musical has been in the works for the last six years, and it ran in Cambridge, Massachusetts for 79 straight sold-out shows last year. Kanye West, he and his wife, Kim Kardashian, are not allowed on the set of The Voice. John Legend was pushing for Kanye to be an advisor for Team John, but when the other coaches, Kelly Clarkson, Blake Shelton, and Adam Levine got word of it, they voiced their concerns to the higher-ups, who decided the couple will not be welcome on the set. There you go. That's it for this week. Famous Lost Words is produced by Adam Karsh. Thanks, Adam. Executive producer, Rob Farina. Don't forget, the best way to support Famous Lost Words is simply to listen to past episodes on the iHeartRadio app or on Apple Podcasts.